It's our Wednesday profile today where we uh, we have a chat with someone from one of the uh, the different codes and we're going harness racing this week with a man, Matty, I know he's been excited about coming on today mm. because I know for a fact he's told his daughter Lyndall more than once that he's going to be on the radio today. <laughs> That's how excited Glenn Conroy's been. G'day, Glenn. How are you? Hey, Sean. Yeah, not just my daughter, Lyndall. I've, I've been uh, telling random strangers, you know, walking past and say, oh, well, you're talking about the radio. Yeah, I'll be on the radio with Sean Cosgrove next week. So, yeah, I've, I've spread the word, Sean. You are a worry. You are a worry. Now, amazing family background with uh, your mum and dad. They uh, they finished, started off, what, with a five-hectare bush block around Hepburn Regional Park, what, back in the 50s? Yeah, uh, mum and dad started off and, and dad was a labourer and dad didn't get his harness racing licence until he was 35 and then he still did odd jobs and then in 1972 he won the Dullard Cup with a horse called Mary Beverly. That allowed him to turn professional, so he's a professional trainer then until the day he died. Uh, he won the Victorian trotting uh, trainer 15 years, so he was a leading trainer of trotters in Victoria 15 years and Victoria at were the dominant state, so essentially he was the leading trainer of trotters in Australia in, on 15 separate occasions, which is a record that hasn't been equaled mm. so far. Glenn, how did you gravitate to, to the trotters? Was that by design or just the way things worked out? No, it's because the fact that my father was a very good horseman and he was old enough to, uh, when he left school, he handled horses uh, pulling logs to the sawmill with, with uh, Clydesdales and horses like that. So Dad was of an age where he was raised with horses. In fact, Dad used to tell me that when he was a kid, he would go outside when a car went past their house because it was such a big thing to, to see a car. So Dad was a natural horseman. He started to show how good he was with horses that other people couldn't get along with. Uh, at that stage, trotting wasn't this, how it is now with horses being a lot more natural. So Dad was very accomplished at getting horses going. And then uh, we had a horse called Amazon, and he was eight. We got him when he was eight year old, and Dad won twenty nine races with him from when he was eight year old to when he was eleven, including the Australasian Trotters Championship. And he'd been through several trainers uh, in his career and hadn't won a race until Dad got hold of him. So people were aware what a good horseman, what a skilled horseman Dad was, and so uh, he got uh, got into trotting. And then the more you have, the more you want. And and when the phone rings and someone offers you a horse, uh, especially when you're trying to get established. You don't ask what colour or anything like that. You say, yes, send him around tomorrow. So that's how we got going, Sean. Glenn, Matt Nevitt here. Great to have you on Big V Racing this afternoon. We appreciate your time. And I'm fascinated by a few aspects to your story and your, your family's involvement with harness racing. One particular area I'm intrigued by is the way that your operation uh, actually trains the horses. It's quite different to most, isn't it? Can you talk us through the unique nature of how you actually work your horses? Yeah, well, how we work our horses, Matt, is... Uh it evolved from where we are. Where we live in the, on the edge of the Wombat Forest. So when Dad started out, he didn't have a track of his own. Uh, so he would do a lot of his work out through the through the bush. And then uh, of a morning, if he wanted to fast work the horse, he would take it down to the local football ground. There was only a little tiny gate for the players to get into the ground, lead his horse through the gate, lift his cart over the fence, harness the horse up, fast work it around the football ground, and then reverse the process to get back out before the curator came over morning. So uh, when we got a track, we felt that uh, it was better for man and beast to work the horses out of the bush. So we'd get horses that had come from the city, and uh, they'd worked on the flat their whole life, and quite often they'd worked on the track their whole life. 
So it was a big eye-opener for them to go out the bush. And then Dad started swimming horses uh, for a start, like everyone else, sort of on, on a wire. And then we started doing it behind the rowboat. So we swim almost all of our horses. We've got a big dam here. Uh, it's a couple of acres, the dam. And we swim the horses behind the rowboat. So we've got a, an advantage over a lot of people. We can get away from the track and we can vary our, our swimming. And, and if you get a horse that's bad in the legs, obviously it's good swimming. But mm. swimming is good for horses in general. You know, expands their lungs, makes their heart pump. And, and as you can imagine, Matt, if you were going down to the, the dam uh, and it's minus th- three overnight and you're going down to the dam and it's a frosty morning, I reckon your heart will be pumping too if you're pulling on the trunks <laughs> and going into the water. So, yeah, uh, yeah so, so swimming's been a very good thing uh, as well. But we work out the, the bush tracks and it's, it's a great thing for the trotters because uphill, downhill, around corners, and they learn to balance themselves and not uh, not be upset by changes in the rhythm. Now, Glenn, have you had any that you whacked in behind the road boat and they've gone straight to the bottom? They can't swim? We have had the odd one, uh, Sean, yeah, and it finds the life out of you. Uh, we've never lost one, but uh, most horses can naturally swim and we give them a bit of wading and then take them off the feet and bring them back. But you get the occasional one who either just freezes up or, or through uh, through fear or, or just through uh, lack of ability that they, they don't seem able to swim. And, yeah, you, you, you row pretty hard to the shore and, and you, even in your head as, they, as their head bobs up, you think, oh, I'm glad I didn't have to ring the owner and tell him that uh, uh, his horse went under and didn't come back up. But yeah. we've been doing it for uh, 40 years or more and I've never had to make that call. But we've had a few close calls, so, uh, yeah, it's not something... It'll give you a big pride and the horse as well, I imagine. Now, Glenn, I've always wanted to know, I love the square gaiters, when you get one that keeps breaking all the time, how do you get them back into their gait and, and get them to maintain that and not break? Yeah, the tricks are to find, try and find out why what's making them break, Sean. So I know that sounds obvious, but you've got to make sure that they haven't got a little rub, that they're, they're, or they're not, not you know, the boots haven't rubbed them, or they're not hurting in the feet. Uh, make sure they're shod correctly. Uh, shoeing's a big part of uh, square gutting, more so than harness, more so than pacing. Uh, make sure that they're not hearing too much. Uh, there's there's, a, there's a lots and lots of areas where they're one percenters, you know, and, and you try and find get inside the horse's head and try and find out what he doesn't like, and then go from there. And and some of it is. Uh, They've learned a habit and, and they've got to uh, unlearn the habit. If, if unlearn is a word, Matt, you'll have to check that. But they've got to, they've got to you know, just show them mainly through repetition and kindness, uh, Sean. Now, shoeing is so important with uh, the paces and the square gaiters. And the way you shoe them, you can affect their balance. It's almost doing orthotics for them in a way, isn't it? It is for sure. It is for sure. You're like, you know yourself, if you were going out, out the door and you put someone else's boots on, you're not comfortable, you're not happy. So uh, we do all our own shoeing. I do all. My father uh, was our farrier, and then he showed me how to do it. Uh, you know, when I was thirteen and fourteen, you know, I was always on dad's heels, and showed me how to put a nail in, and then went from there. Uh, it's not a job you want to inherit, it, but uh, uh, I've done a lot of it. I know what what I want to do, and it's like my daughter Lyndall is, is a hairdresser, and sometimes I go down, and uh, this will be a shock to you, uh, blokes, but women like to get their hair cut and coloured a lot, <laughs> and I'm always amazed how quickly Lindell can do it and get them out the door. So uh, I can chew fast and, and touch wood by looking at their feet and, 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 and working them here. I've got a rough idea of where to start, and then we go from there. And then anne uh, who is the trainer of our, our establishment, will say, this one's touching his knee, this one's touching his cannabone. Uh, what about this, or could you do this, or whatever? And we, and we work as a team. Uh, I've digged myself up, but it, it's all of us. Uh, 
chewing them out. It's not it's not just me. Even though Amory's gone to the races and I've just finished chewing them and I'm sitting on the bucket here talking to you blokes, uh, it's it's all of us that do the work. Now, uh, we're chatting with Glenn Conroy. Uh, we've got to go to the Meadows in a moment, but when we come back, I'd like you to sing one of the songs you've written for Old Melbourne Road, if that's all right, Glenn. Yeah, well, we'll when you come back, I'll let you know how that works out. <laughs> Glenn Conroy, who is a singer-songwriter as well and writes for Old Melbourne Road, the band. How many songs have you written for him, Glenn? Oh, I've only written one song with uh, David Murphy, who, who's the lead, or one of the lead singers for Old Melbourne Road. David had a tune. David's a successful trainer-driver. He had a part of a chorus, and he asked me if I'd write, write a, a song with it. So I wrote a song that uh, fitted his chorus, and uh, it's called Quick and Clean. Uh, you blokes will have, should play it over the radio uh, and give it a bit of a hit out. Uh, I'm not a singer or songwriter. I am a singer in the shower, but right. I'm not a singer over, over the air. <laughs> but uh, Quick and Clean, anyone that's listening, Old Melbourne Road, it's a good song. I'm, the, the band did a fantastic job with it, and I'm really, really pleased with it. And we use it as our theme song. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel called Victorian Gold Hunters, and we use it on our theme tune for that. And, and a lot of people comment on it and say how much they enjoy it. So you and Matt, uh, you've got to pump it up uh, when you yeah. get a chance, Sean. Yeah, no, we, we're steering everyone to this YouTube channel, Victorian Gold Hunters, which I want you to tell me a little bit more about, Glenn, because I understand that you've got a, a real interest in finding gold, particularly in the, uh, the Wombat State Forest. Yeah, that's my thing. Uh, that's my hobby, and uh, I've always been a scrounger. You know, I was one of those kids that when you go up to the tip, I was first out of the car, and I was dragging stuff back to the car more than we were throwing away. And then I got interested in metal detecting, and I got interested in bottle de- detecting. And then uh, I was finding quite a bit of gold, uh, which helped my family, uh, my my wife Tracy and I, uh, with our family. And then uh, a little while ago, Lyndall set me up with an Instagram. My daughter set me up with an Instagram account. And so I was thrilled by that because you were able to show stuff you found. And then I crossed paths with a bloke called Anthony Merivale, and he said, I'll come and film you. We were mates, and I'll come and film you, and I like detecting. So we started putting stuff on YouTube, and and we got followers, and then uh, we've built up a, a good following. And we go out. Uh, we film ourselves. We're taking turns with a mobile phone, which is frightening in itself because... When you look at the mobile phone, you see yourself on the mobile phone, you think, geez, I'm a handsome man. <laughs> and then when it, when, it, when it comes on the big screen, you go, gee, you know. Uh, extra pixels. It's like if you, if you do FaceTime time on your phone, you usually only do it once and you think no more of that. So, uh, But uh, we enjoy going out the bush. Uh, Victorian Gold Hunters, look it up, folks, on YouTube. Uh, follow us. I said to my mate, we've been going about 12 months, and I said, gee, we get a lot of good comments. And he said, yeah, I knock out all the ones that, are, that talk about you and say how rough you look and things like that. And I, I didn't know that. I didn't know he was protecting me from the from the outside world. But that's where I live my whole life. I'm protected. My my uh, wife Tracy and now my my part Tracy died when she was 42, but now my partner Josie she looks after me. My daughter Linda looks after me. So you know, I'd I'd be living in a hole throwing rocks at rabbits if I didn't have the women around me that uh, that help me. Yeah. Now, we were discussing your interest for, for gold hunting out the back here at RSN a little bit earlier this morning, and, and Matthew Stewart was saying uh, he his grandfather, um, who was called John Clark, he ran the uh, the gold mine in the Waddle Valley area. Right, Are you yeah. familiar with that? Yeah, I'm familiar with it for sure, yes. yeah. Uh, there's a whole sort of subculture of people that are interested in gold and interested in mining, and I'm very interested in history as well, mm. in, in the mining history, so... 
when we go out, uh, if we go to an area like that that you're talking about, I like to look it up and research it and then tell the people that are watching us a bit about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you are telling them, they don't realise you've just read it the night before and you've memorised most of it. So <laughs> they think, geez, this bloke knows what he's yeah. talking about. And <laughs> even if I don't, they can't tell because they, 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 can't, they can only see what we show them. So, uh, and then you've got the beauty of Anthony, you will edit anything out, uh, you know, if you swear or you say something that's inappropriate or whatever. So probably if we film for two hours, we show 40 minutes of it. Now, we're talking with Glenn Conroy. Glenn, what's the biggest nugget you've found when you've been gold prospecting? The best bit I've found was a bit, bit over 14 ounces, which oh. if you found it this morning, uh, you'd be looking at close to 40,000. Wow, Gee whiz. So but when did you find that, Glenn? I found that when uh, probably, well, uh, my daughter's 36. We'll have to do the math. My daughter's 36, and she was about, uh, my youngest daughter, Lindell, and she was about 15, uh, 14 or 15. So, because I remember bringing it home and giving it to Tracy, and Tracy said, well, Lindell needs braces, and there's so many bills on the fridge and things like that. So, this will wow. fit perfectly. So, it was a great hobby uh, because, you know, if you're a bloke that goes down the pub or something like that, your missus is going to say, oh, don't be going down the pub. But, yeah. When I was going out of the bush, working, and then going out of the bush, enjoying myself, and virtually bringing money home, it, fit, it, fit, it suited everyone. Everyone was happy. <laughs> so do you remember what it was worth at the time? I think it was only worth about 9000 at the time, seven half nine to 9000 I, I can't, uh, I don't know exactly. Yeah. Uh, I've had better, better days. Uh, one day I was out and I found three lots of three ounces and a pocket full of small. Oh. And uh, I, I know you'll think this bloke stretches the truth, but when I was coming back uh, to my car, I could feel it pulling my pants down. I could feel the weight of the guy pulling my pants oh. down at the back, you know. So uh, I've, I've had some good days. I've been out plenty of times and found uh, nothing at all. And mm. and it's one of those jobs. It's like if you're talking to a bloke and you say, oh, when you won the end of the million, how much you get? And they say, oh, we got 250000 You think, geez, that's all right. But they forget the night they were up at Wangaratta and run, you know had two run last or things like that. So that's what that's what mental detecting's like as well. Yeah, Matt, yeah, uh, you've got to like it. In fact, you've got to love it if you want to do it, and then you work backwards from that. Yeah, it's like when I go out fishing with my old man and we don't catch anything. The feeling of coming back with nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, but uh, it, it's the anticipation of going out and then uh, and then the excuses coming back. And uh, Anthony and I went out last week. And we didn't find anything, but we found there's, there's a lot of other stuff apart from gold out there. We found uh, two English coins because Australia didn't get its own currency until 1910. So, so we, we were using English currency through the gold rush. Gold rush started in 1851, and uh, and we found a token from Tasmania that was marked Van Diemen's Land, and it was used by a bloke who was transported to Tasmania as a convict, served 14 years, released into the community. In, then he got the uh, job of operating the toll gate, and he had his name on the toll toll gate tokens, and we found one of those. So, you know, it, it's fascinating what's still out the bush and what's still to be found. Now, Glenn, we're talking with Glenn Conroy, harness racing. Uh, for many years, there used to be a certain valiant going around with uh, the sulky on top. That's that was us, Sean. In fact, a whole fleet of them. And uh, valiants were cars, you know, that when everyone moved into the modern, more modern cars, uh, no one wanted them, you know. So. At one stage, we had 26 Valiants here at the property, you know, and uh, you'd break a door handle, so you'd go out the back, pluck the door handle out or a headlight or whatever, and then uh, the glorious time came when everybody else wanted them. And so so suddenly, cars that were completely rusted out, completely worn out, young blokes were coming in the front gate and saying, I'll give you 4000 for that, I'll give you 5000 for that. 
And it was a great time. It was a great time to be alive. It'd be a valiant salesman, uh, <laughs> Sean. But they were great cars. A, a bloke messaged me one time and said, how many miles has that car gone? Done. And it had done more than a million, um, uh, a million K uh, on, the, on the clock, which took you up to the moon, 385,000 miles uh, K to the moon, up to the moon, back, and on your way up again, and then uh, on your way again, and then slightly back, you know, so... When you look at it like that, we got a good run out of the Valiance. I still love the Valiance. My first car was a 1965 AP5 Midnight Blue Valiant, three on the tree. Yeah, but you were a bit of a playboy, Sean. That, that's, <laughs> that's how that came about. You know? we, we had more your standard car, uh, uh, Sean. We, we weren't, weren't your, play, your playboy type. In fact, you probably still are. You're, you're probably roaring around in a charger now in your spare time. <laughs> yeah, and, and given the signal, hey, charger as well. <laughs> But, and as you're going to give cheek, I'll bowl something up to you. I've done a bit yeah, of homework. Go on, mate, go on. Yeah, yeah. Did you or did you not name a horse and the lot of something? Yeah, lot of top. <laughs> I slipped it past my mother and father. Uh, lot of top was a porn star, and, and you can get the guest name from lot of top. And we had a horse by our servants a lot. And uh, mum and dad were saying, we'll call it lot this, lot that. And I said, call it lot of top. And mum said, what's a lot of top? And I said, oh, it just means that when you're in a racing car, it's got a lot of speed in the high gears. It's got a lot of top. <laughs> so a lot of top raced successfully and won. And uh, when she had a first star, Dan Malecki Googled a lot of top, as you do just to find out whether... And then uh, he he said a red-faced youth down to us to say, do you know a lot of top? And I said, yeah, I know, I named it. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of top... Uh, Sean, <laughs> can be revealed now. Yeah. <laughs> it's been revealed to the public, Glenn. Yeah. And you've also got a horse named Malecki. We have indeed. We've got a horse. Uh, the, the Nixon brothers raised a horse with us called Malecki. He'd been through a few trainers, and we were uh, the last chance saloon. And uh, he's won five races this season. And he was, and he is a very difficult horse to handle early on. Uh, but now... If you do everything that suits him in his preparation uh, for gearing and everything else, and my daughter Lynn will help me a lot with that. Uh, she figured out what sort of bit to wear on him and what sort of uh, hood, uh, you know, so he couldn't hear. And he's quite a handy horse. He's only four-year-old. Uh, he'll be in the size stakes race, but he'll be, be outclassed because he hasn't crossed that gap. You know, it's a hard thing. You start off with a maiden at the start of the season and then you're racing against the best four-year-olds around. You're not going to cross that bridge unless you're exceptional. But he is a handy horse, and we, and Dan doesn't have to put his head down every time Malecki races now. He can talk him up a bit. Yeah. Daniel Paul Malecki, because they asked me the other night, uh, what, you know, what we call him at home. I said, oh, we call him Dan, but I thought Dan might have some sort of more exotic name as, as his second name, but he's only, apparently he's only Daniel Paul. <laughs> now, what's been the best horse you've had, Glenn? I suppose the best horse we've had was Lincoln Star, uh, uh, ironically a pacer. Mm. Uh, he raced in the Miracle Mile, and uh, he was a very good horse. He was that cup horse. You know, he won the Bendigo Cup and the Italian Cup and things like that. Uh, Amazon was an exceptional horse, won the Australasian. Mary Beverly, I mentioned, won the Dullard Cup. Uh, we've had a lot of, of fast-class trotters, a lot, over the years. And uh, when I was starting out, I got to drive a lot of good horses as well, you know, horses from other stables. But I was content not to be a professional driver because it's a very hard game being a professional driver, but I drove True Roman and I drove Franco Tiger. Um, and when you look at our professional drivers, you know, half of them look as though they've had illegal bonsai uh, operated on them. You know, so it's a tough game being a, being a professional driver. 
Glenn, do you uh, do you still love it as much as what you did when you were growing up? That's a good question, Matt. And and some nights, uh, some days, the answer is definitely no, emphatically no. Mm. But then there are other days when I can see myself. My dad was eighty six, and the day he got killed, he got tipped out and killed in the Wombat Forest. And I was standing in the yard the day he jogged the horse past. Uh, it was a nice warm day. He jogged the horse past, and he was singing. Uh, everything was going good, and then a short while later, Amory came into the kitchen, uh, into our kitchen here, and said, "Dad's been killed." And uh, I, I've often thought about it, and it it seemed like a tragedy at the time, but it wasn't a tragedy. Dad was happy, healthy, mentally competent, and then his life ended just like that. Mm. And uh, I see that, hopefully not uh, dying at eighty six, but but. Now, I see that as my future, yeah. I I'll think I'll still be going. I'll be one of those blokes that, when you're at the races, holds onto your hand to talk to you, you know, so to stop you going away. I'll, I see that as my future, Matt. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Did, did you ever think about, or any of the family think about giving it up when your dad died? There was a bit of uh, consternation that whether we'd be able to, to, to go on, uh, because even though Dad... Uh, wasn't going to the races. He was still very much the figurehead, and he was still he was doing a lot of things. In fact, he must have been doing a lot more than we thought, because after Dad died, in the weeks after Dad died, uh, when you were feeding broodmares and, and uh, talking on the phone and ordering feed and doing all of those things, you'd think, well, Dad must have been doing this, and I wasn't realising. But no, I don't think there. I don't think I think it would have been uh, no reason to. You know, uh, it was just bad luck what happened to Dad, but it happened to him when he was 86, and uh, it wasn't the first time, probably wasn't the first hundred times that he'd bounced out of the car. You know, it's, it's a risky caper, this, and things will go wrong. Uh, he was just unlucky that he was an old, older man, landed on his chest, stopped his heart, uh, uh, virtually stopped his heart, and there was a bloke walking past, you know, a bushwalker. Dad said, I've been tipped out on Bob Conroy. The bloke rang the ambulance, and by the time the ambulance arrived, the, the, the bloke did, the bushwalker did CPR, but that was the end of Dad's life, you know. So uh, it, there was no reason for us to say, oh, this is terrible, you know. Uh, it was just just Dad's life came to an end, and uh, that was it. But, no, it probably made us more determined to keep going, if anything. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great that you're still in the game and that you're still uh, as passionate as, as ever, um, Glenn. I, I must ask you, but are you, have you got an interest in the Greyhounds as well? Because you were talking about a horse that's named after Dan Malecki called Malecki, but there's a Greyhound called... Conroy and I believe Lyndall, your daughter, is an owner of that greyhound. It's got a pretty good record. Good on you, Matty. Thanks for bringing that up because that was one of the things on my list that I had to mention. Lyndall said so. Well done to you. No. Yeah, well, uh, Lyndall uh, is mates with John Barbara, who, who's a prominent greyhound trainer. Uh, the first pup she had wasn't much good. Uh, the very second, the second dog she got, which was Conroy, started to show a bit, and John said, "Well, you can name it." And Lyndall said to me, "I could name it." And because I've got a big head, I call it Conroy. <laughs> and every time we, we uh, it, it's won 12 races, and that's quite a good horse. And because Lyndall is on, gets on social media, a lot of people know it's our dog. I say our dog, her dog. Uh, and I went to watch it. I was at Bendigo one day, and the harness racing and the trotting tracks and the greyhound tracks side by side. Went across to watch it with Lyndall, and they started in the back straight, and they come around, and I'm cheering it like mad. And I went past the the winning post and I thought oh maybe I've made a fool of myself and I said to the bloke next to me was that the finish and he said settle down it's not the Dullard Cup <laughs> so yeah uh, I'm a complete new chum but I, uh, Lyndall is 
really passionate about the greyhounds. She likes the greyhounds, and uh, she's been very lucky. She's got another pup now that will be racing. It's just started the trial, and I want to call it G Conroy. You know, uh, after so, yourself. After myself, of course. Uh, I was going to go for Glenn Conroy, but I, I think they make it a little bit subtle. I'll just go G Conroy. <laughs> or just superstar. That'll do. <laughs> What's been the biggest thrill you've had? I think the biggest thrill I've had, my wife Tracy, uh, that I touched briefly on, she's, uh, we, I, I took Tracy into getting engaged to me when she was 17, and, and my, my daughters reckon it was because I knew I was punching way above my weight, and I had to lock her down before... Uh, she realised she could do a lot better. So when Trace was training and driving, uh, we had a horse called Final Look, and Trace's first ever drive at Mooney Valley in a Metropolitan race was on the horse that I was training called Final Look, and she was driving. And all the way down, I was lecturing, and I said, you know, it's a lot harder down here. You know, I was in the race as well, just sort of hanging around me and, and then hope for the best. Anyhow, I ran eight to nine, and when I was pulling up, I said, Trace, how'd you go? And she said, I won. And that was the greatest feeling, you know, that Trace, for all the hard work, had been rewarded and winning. So that was my biggest thrill in harness racing. And I Chatting with Ben Conroy in harness racing, telling us his biggest thrill was when his wife won at Mooney Valley at her first drive ever. What was the conversation in the, the car like on the way home? There would have been bragging rights there, Glenn. Yeah, there was. And uh, it was at those days, they used to run the race, uh, the trotting races late in the program. They were always... And at Mooney Valley, they, for some reason, they used to race late as well. So it was about 11 o'clock when we were coming home. And uh, we were determined, Tracy and I were determined to stop somewhere. And uh, by the time we cleared the track, you know, where there were horses, it was past midnight. And every little milk bar was closed. All the takeaways were closed. They're not like they were now, 24-hour jobs. So we drove into Bagus Marsh, and there was a bloke just pulling down the shutters on uh, the fish and chip shop. I went in, and uh, I said, how about something, mate? He said, oh, I've got these steamed in sims that... Uh, They've been in the pot practically since six o'clock, and they were like they were hard as stones. And Trace and I were driving up the Tentlands, eating these hard dim sims, and it was heaven itself. You know, it was great. It was it was we really enjoyed <laughs> enjoyed ourselves. So uh, it was, and I and as I said before, now that Trace Trace died when she was forty two, as I said, from cancer, uh, it, it's a great part. Of, it was a great part of my life, and I, I think how lucky I, I was to to have Tracy and, and, and to have those, mo- those moments. Well, the whole family's been close, haven't they? Anne-Marie, yourself, everyone. Oh, we are. We're very much so. And, uh, uh, like, I see my family every day. I, I, I see, uh, uh, well, I used to be mum and dad. I see my mum now. I come down every morning and light the fire for mum. Mum's 86 and lives by herself. Uh, I might have to try it. Mum's 86 and she's hanging on a bit too much. I think I might have to try and get her to jog a horse out of the bush. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, mum, mum's great, and uh, and Anne Marie, I get along very well with Anne Marie. Uh, Anne Marie's a very uh, hardworking person, you know. She's she do, she's got a, a, a husband and a, and a son, and she's got to look after them. Uh, and she runs the stable here, and she does all the all the other things, and looks after mum in various ways as well. Uh, Anne Marie and I might have a disagreement, but it's very rare for us to have an argument, you know. With uh, it, we we. I, I, you, you couldn't count the, on, your, on one hand or you, the number of times we've actually had a blue. You know, we get along very well, and uh, and, I, and I'm lucky. I'm lucky that people that are in my life are so tolerant of me, and uh, and we get along so well. Have you got a winner for us in the next week or two? I wondered about that. I thought now this, these blokes will ask if we've got a winner, and 
I'm going to say disregard Elbaran Gwyn's next couple of starts because uh, she's going to end. She's a, a, a four-year-old mare and she's going to end up for the size, so she'll get get belted in that. But the first time you see Elbaran Gwyn in a low class class race, get on, and if you do no good. Look up my number on the phone, in the trainer's guide and ring me up and abuse me. <laughs> I think Aldebaran Gwen is ready to win. Uh, Aldebaran Gwen, right? Uh, Glenn. We'll be... Aldebaran Gwen, yeah. Gwen, Gwen, yeah. Gwen, yeah, not Glenn Gwen. She's a, she's a trotting mare, and she ran second last start. Uh, she was in the heat of the, you know, the, they had the junior drivers, the young drivers mm. championship. She was well handled by a girl called Samantha Pascoe and ran second. Uh, I think she's ready to win, so that, that's my tip. But but when we're here in the shed, people say to me, do you think it's going to rain? And I say, no, nah, it doesn't look like rain. And then they put the plastics on. So they sort of do, people tend to do the opposite of what I suggest. So uh, <laughs> maybe I'm not such a great tipster, Matty. Well, Glenn, it's been great catching up today and having a chat with you, mate. Really appreciate it. Good fun. And uh, good luck. And let's hope you get to 86 like your dad. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting a little bit further, Sean, but... Uh, uh, I'll, I'll let you go. I, I know I'm holding you by the hand over the phone, but uh, I Googled you last night and I was surprised. I thought you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. I didn't know that you'd done so much and, and worked so hard to get where you are. So good on you, Sean. Nice yeah. to talk to you, Matt. Oh, and thanks no, very, thanks, very much. Man. And if you, find a, if you find a spot where you think the gold's going off, just maybe give us a call first <laughs> and we might just swing out the Dalesford one afternoon and see what's happening. <laughs> good on you, Matty. And what I reckon our videos need is a good voiceover, man. So, you know, just if you know of anyone, put him, put him towards us. Yeah, well, the man across uh, from me at the moment is Mr. Cosgrove. He's very busy. He charges a lot these days. Days, so oh, yeah, you, you, you want a big nugget, I think. Gather that from the internet. Yeah, you'll be wanting Glenn Conroy. Come on down. That's what you'll yeah, be wanting. Either that or, or one of the, the funeral videos for myself. Uh, <laughs> uh, good yeah. on you, Glenn. Good Appreciate you, your time, mate. Thanks, mate. Good on you, Sean. Yeah, yeah, see you, mate. A lot of fun. A lot of fun chatting to a couple great of superstars bloke. this morning. Cosy Ronnie Hutchinson, first of all, on his 95th birthday, and then great to have Glenn Conroy on Big V Radio.